It's time for class. Civics just doesn't begin and end on election day. This is Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged with political strategist L. Joy Williams on Sirius XM's Urban View. Welcome to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. I'm your host, your civics teacher, your neighborhood political strategist, L. Joy Williams. And today, also your birthday girl. That's right. Today is my birthday and I still wanted to do what I love, which is educating and empowering you to take civic action. Early voting officially began yesterday and I spent the first day in the streets kicking off this voting season in Brooklyn at the Barclays Center, which stepped up to serve as an early voting site. We were joined by the Brooklyn United Marching Band and what better way to vote on the first day of early vote than with a drum line? <laughs> well, I would love to tell you more about that. You can follow me on social media to see video and pictures of that. We got to get to today's lessons. Although the lines were wrapped around the corner for early voting and you had a lot of folks congregating, people continued to socially distance and they were wearing their masks. That's because... COVID is not only still among us, but it's still wreaking havoc on our health system, on our economy, and we have a long way to go in terms of recovery. Now, earlier this week, I talked to Howard University President Wayne Frederick as they and other HBCUs announced a $15 million donation from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. This is going to COVID-19 testing at their schools and communities. I spoke with President Frederick about how this donation will be used to bolster resources for those schools and the students and the communities they serve. But we are also discussed some of the challenges and conspiracy theories concerning research, vaccines, and health disparities in Black communities. Dr. Frederick, thank you so very much for joining Sunday Civics for the very first time and taking the time to speak with us. We're happy to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. My pleasure. So I want to begin where we begin with every new guest to the show by telling us the story of your first civic action. Yeah, you know, I'm sure there were several um, before this one, but the one that comes to mind is becoming a naturalized citizen. I would say it was probably the one that was most memorable because um, having to really learn in depth about uh, the United States and its history, its laws, et cetera, was really revealing. Um, and that occurred some 20 years after I had initially um, come to school here. And so as an adult, um, learning about that, I think was really important. I would then go back uh, maybe some five or six years later, uh, maybe a little longer, to the same courtroom and be the, the keynote speaker at a naturalization uh, ceremony. And that was also very, um, as a civic action, uh, that was kind of the ultimate full circle um, as well. 
That is definitely a full circle civic action moment. So I want to talk uh, a bit about the just recently announced uh, a program, a millions of dollars in funding from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation to HBCUs to address COVID-19 testing and screening. And I want you to talk a bit about this program and the impact it'll have on the community. Sure. So it's it's kind of a two-part program. Uh, the first part is is what's called the Just Project. It's um, named after Ernest Everett Just, who was a scientist um, here at Howard University. We have a biology building. Our biology building is actually named after him. And so the Just Project was designed by Thermo Fisher. Um, they decided that they wanted to make sure HBCUs were equipped to have testing. And so they denote, they donated um, equipment uh, so that we could stand up a clear certified lab at several HBCUs and proceed with testing. We would act as a hub with the spokes being other regional HBCUs who we would do testing for. And that's how it started. Um, the Gates Foundation came in to support that lab um, process because obviously with that lab you need to have um, some ancillary equipment but you also need to have staff and especially in this current environment with everybody trying to do COVID testing lab personnel are, are actually extremely expensive um, at this present time and so they came in and donated a 15 million dollar gift to 10 HBCUs the idea is to give 1.5 million to each to help stand the lab up over the next three years to fund personnel, et cetera. Six of the labs have been designated. There's room for another four um, to come in. Um, Howard has its lab up and running already. Uh, the others should be online fairly soon, but we've had our lab up and running about a month now. And it's been great because the gift allows us to test all of our students, faculty and staff for free. And it also expands our ability to test uh, people in the community. And that means a lot to us because as the pandemic was breaking, we at Howard stood up two testing sites out in vulnerable communities. And that was that proved to be absolutely um, indispensable. Mm. So when you talk about standing up the labs and particularly at on the campus to be able to test students and staff, <clears throat> but then being able to engage the community and HBCUs have always been not only an incubator space for the students and the faculty there, but also spilling out into the communities into which um, they are positioned in. How, what is the connection then to after the two years? How does this allow the institution that these labs are going to be at to further benefit after standing up the lab for the current testing? Yeah, great question. You know, short term, obviously, we all focus on COVID, but the reality is that the testing process, the actual methodology of the test can be applied to a wide variety of tests. So it means that it expands our testing ability. So rather than having to collect specimen and send them out, um, we now have the capacity to do all of that in-house. So it means turnaround time um, is shortened. It also means as a potential revenue stream, um, we can do some tests that would typically be sent out. And then also we have to think long-term. Um, yes, we are concerned about COVID-19 right now, but the reality is this is probably gonna linger in our, uh, unfortunately, in our consciousness uh, for the next three to five years realistically, because you have hundreds of millions of people you're gonna need to vaccinate in order to really 
um, eradicate this, just like we've done in the past with polio, et cetera. It's going to take a few years to get there. So in the interim, people are still going to get infected and you still are going to need to do tests. And then there will be other types of viruses and other types of um, infectious diseases that will come about as well that we will need to stand up testing for. So there, there's a variety of reasons why this lab is going to be important going forward. And then it also can act as a site for research and doing research in our community in particular as a trusted partner to the community is something that could really further the participation of African-Americans in clinical trials, which right now in our country, to be quite frank, um, is very problematic. I'm glad you um, brought that up because I wanted to bring that up next. So my husband and I are very different in terms of the focus of clinical trials, vaccines, and things like that. For me personally, I did the DNA test. I'm fine with my data being used for further research because I know that there is not as many Black folks involved in clinical trials and things. And so I'm like, well, I don't care about it. So I'm fine with allowing the information to be used for that further research. My husband, however, is like, I know what they did to black folks. (laughs) Like, I'm not doing it. I had to convince him to get a flu shot. He's just like, I don't trust it. Right. So there is definitely this disconnect and this mistrust that you mentioned about participating in clinical trials, even about vaccines. People think that the vaccine people being misinformed about vaccines is just white suburban women. But there are black folks, too, who do not trust it as well. And so when you talk about HBCUs being a trust partner, what is what is going to be done to help chip away at that armor to really make sure um, that our communities benefit and don't always be um, at the bottom as it pertains to these diseases that may further further spread in our community? Sure. And you and your husband, uh, I would say, are very typical of what's happening <laughs> across America right now. And, and the conversation has taken place at the dinner table. Um, even in my household, and I'm a, a surgical oncologist, and I'm, um, I, I have a 16-year-old son and 14-year-old daughter, and uh, they have skepticism. And when I tell them that I'll probably participate in the trial, uh, their eyes open a little bit wide, and they're like, okay, um, get back to me. After. <laughs> uh, but this is the reality. If you stub the average African-American on the street and you ask them about the details of the Tuskegee um, experiment, mm-hmm they probably can't articulate it. You know, it's, it's become more legend than part of our reality. And yes, as a result of that and other things, lots of things have been put in place to secure um, the safety of participants in clinical trials. I'm a surgical oncologist. I've enrolled patients in clinical trials before I still practice, I still operate. And so I still recommend patients to clinical trials and I see all of the safeguards that are there. And it's a very different system. So that's number one. Number two, uh, what we're going to ensure here at Howard is we are going to participate in the Novavax clinical trial, phase three. Uh, We will enroll patients, but we also will participate on the science aspect of what's going on so that we can be a trusted partner. Being a trusted partner doesn't mean that we just simply uh, collect the newspapers and go deliver them. Uh, We want to write the story as well, and we're going to be on the front side of writing the story, printing the paper, and then delivering it to our community so we can reassure them that what when we say we believe that this is safe for them to participate, um, that it is safe. And I think that's being a different type of trusted partner. 
And I think that that's a critical aspect of what we must do um, as well. And then the last part uh, to underscore is that because we're disproportionately at risk, we have to be very concerned about our community and we have to think about this more holistically. So one, we have had disproportionate deaths in our community uh, and that, that has a ripple effect. So now you have some breadwinners and families that have been taken away. You have emotional support systems that have been disrupted. And those things are now gonna have a secondary and tertiary effect on the rest of the family. Um, if you look between the months of March and June, I believe this year compared to last year, there have been more people dying at home. I believe when all is said and done and we do collect all the data on that, we'll see that more people died at home probably because of COVID, but um, a lot of people would have died because of chronic illnesses like hypertension that went untreated, diabetes that went untreated. That's gonna have another impact on our community. So what is gonna ultimately happen with a recession being the third leg of that stool is that you once again are gonna negatively impact the African-American community with our unemployment rate being even higher. And I think that this impact of this pandemic, while there are short-term impacts that we can see, will stretch out um, probably even decades if we do not as a community begin to put things in place. And the first thing we have to put in place is to ensure that we decrease the spread of the infection in our community and that we eradicate the virus in our community. And the first way we can do that, the first civic action we can all take to do that is to make sure that we get vaccinated. And so that therefore we are let, less risk to each other. I like that because I have, you know, <clears throat> a trained professional on the show. One of the um, discussions that happened, particularly on social media, about African-Americans, about Black folks participating in clinical trials <clears throat> is this uh, question or this notion that is there any significant difference based upon race for folks to participate in the trial? That why not just why not just let all the white folks do it? Like, what is there any difference between yeah, um, black question. physiology? That, that's a great question. You know, there, there are a class of drugs called ACE inhibitors, which we use for hypertension. And they are based on an angiotensin converting enzyme molecule that has a receptor on some of our cells. And, and during some prior years of clinical trials, um, some antihypertensive drugs were developed using that very same um, class of receptors. And those drugs were very effective in clinical trials that did not have a lot of African-Americans. We then try to use those drugs in African-Americans and we still do today, but some of the classes of those drugs were not as effective. Now, one of the things that, have, that has come out early in the science of all of this is speculation that the virus accesses the cells that it impacts through that same receptor. And so one of the concerns is there may be a morphological difference in how the virus may access cells because of that receptor and therefore the vaccine that is developed, depending on how the vaccine is developed, um, it may be different. And we don't know that. The only way for us to know that is to perform a clinical trial and to have a representative amount of people who may have that morphological difference to ensure that rather than do what we've done in the past with some of the antihypertensives where we spread them and give them to, to African-Americans and then discover that, oh, this isn't as effective. You don't get the same antibody response and therefore it's not as effective a vaccine. 
And then the other thing that I think that that creates is, can you imagine the hysteria and speculation that will, and suspicion that will arise if we develop a vaccine that doesn't work well in black people? Mm. I, the, the conversation that will arise from that will not be a healthy one. And we will then go on with the conspiracy theorists when we had an opportunity on the front side to say in the clinical trial, this did not appear to work well in black people. Therefore, we do not recommend that black people get it. And we push the scientists to go back and make sure that they do develop a vaccine that will work in the people who are disproportionately impacted by this disease. I can tell you exactly where that's going to go. It's going to be they developed that for white folks. They didn't do that. They didn't do, they didn't do it for us. They just did it for the wealthy people and the white folks. Right. Like that'll be the conversation. But I want you, even as an educator and, and being on Sunday Civics, explain more um, what you said, morphology or. Yeah, it just means that, you know, the exact shape of the receptor might be slightly different. Uh, and then how it may work may be slightly different. And that may just be because of the genetic makeup mm -hmm. that then leads to that. We all have genes that are slightly different. I have sickle cell anemia. It's more predominant in African-Americans than any other single race because of the African diaspora and, and the spread that resulted because of the transatlantic um, slave trade. So white people having sickle cell is not something that happens. So it means that I do have some cells that are different because, and it's linked to uh, my being black. And, and that's just a reality. That, that's not a eugenics um, type of argument. It's just a reality. We have very pretty, you know, brown skin and that's all part of our genetic makeup. And so some of those same things you see on the outside, there are subtle changes and differences that may occur on the inside as well. Mm. Thank you so very much. We want to make sure that we're giving uh, folks accurate information, um, that we are not contributing to the spread of misinformation and conspiracy theories. And I always talk about it's an important thing to do, an important civic action, that even among your family and friends, as you are talking about things and you notice your cousin saying something that is from some conspiracy theory or something he read on Facebook, to do that correction with love to provide the facts and information across the dinner table so that that information is not spread. The last thing I want to ask you is about the uh, participation of students in this program. I would imagine as an education um, effort, this is obviously the students who are in medical programs at, H at these HBCUs participating in the lab, in the delivery, as you say, of what is to come and servicing the community for testing and vaccines, but are students also participating in the trials? So uh, our students are participating in a wide variety of activities around COVID. Um, they are participating in research. We've been looking at the outcomes of the patients that we've treated. Again, uh, we have, we've had a larger number of African-American patients, and we've had a different type of outcome, actually compared to the nation. And so we have students um, looking at that and writing up that data. Um, we have students looking at our testing. Uh, we are comparing a rapid test to our PCR test. We have students involved in that. We have students involved in the actual testing, collecting the test. Uh, when we stand up the vaccine trial and we recruit patients, we're gonna have students participate in that activity so they can learn about it. Howard is very unusual and, and throughout the HBCU will, let me be clear, um, th there are lots of students who I think will also get exposure. How it is unusual in that we have a medical school, 
we have the only dental school in DC, the only pharmacy school in DC, and we have a, a college of nursing and allied health. So when it comes to interprofessional education, um, we are really well poised to really maximize the opportunity and the benefit for students. The patient is the center of our affection and everybody else that participates, participates for the benefits of the patient. And so this has been a unique opportunity to give our students a real life experience. And let's think about it, a hundred year pandemic, um, they're gonna have a very different education. They are gonna be experts in a very different way. There's nothing that we could have planned or taught in a classroom um, that would have given them the experience. I kind of came up in med school during the HIV epidemic here in America, and I lived through that. So when I speak to the students, I don't just speak about what's in the textbook. I remember times when we were getting CD4 tests on every patient before we operated on them. We were doing things that proved to be not wise. And I remember seeing patients with things like Kaposi sarcoma, very unusual um, aspects of AIDS epidemic, which is now practically eradicated. You rarely ever see patients with those types of diseases as a result of having an HIV infection now. But that, so now when I speak to them, I can tell them that I saw what those lesions looked like. Nobody had to tell me, there's no picture in a book. And that's a very different experience as well. And I think that that's the other critical aspect of this. So yes, our students will certainly benefit in terms of when you say participation in the trial, I want to be clear that we're not encouraging our students necessarily to go get the vaccine themselves. But what we are encouraging them to do is to participate in seeing how you recruit patients, why patients um, who are African-American may be apprehensive to participate and how you manage that, how you, you, you know, encourage them and give them facts to help make the decision, how you educate them, and most importantly, how you take care of them with compassion. And, and I do want to underscore something that you just said. Um, these are tough discussions to have. These have to be dinner table, dinner table discussions. And it is a civic-minded, I think, um, duty that we have to make sure we inform each other about what's going on around us, but we must lead with love. And while we have to social distance, I, I often say to people, these are the types of conversations where you want to hug before you harass and harangue. <laughs> and also, these are the types of conversations where you, you really want to start from a position of listening. You know, tell me what your concerns are and really listen, because sometimes people have legitimate reasons. Sometimes there are mythical reasons, but when they themselves are forced to express it, you then have an opportunity because as they listen to themselves, they then begin to realize that that's not quite an argument built on stone. That may be an argument built on sand. And you, they do most of the work for you by having to express themselves. But we should give them an opportunity and a platform to express themselves. Well, Dr. Frederick, thank you so very much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks for having me. You have a wonderful weekend and please stay safe and healthy. All the wahala, all the problems, all the things that you think that you must do to start in this world. Like when the teacher, schoolboy and schoolgirl come together. Who is the teacher? I go let you know. Who is the 
Welcome back to Sunday Civics with your birthday girl and civic teacher, Eljoy Williams. Now, I'm about two decades or so from collecting a Social Security check, but I've been hearing most my adult life that I may not ever receive said check because Social Security will be bankrupt. But Max Richmond, who's the president of the National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare, um, comes on the show, and I want you to listen as he educates me about Social Security and Medicare and shares how these programs are in danger if the Trump administration continues. Thank you so very much, Mr. Richmond, for joining us on Sunday Civics. I am a nerd, so I do like for people to talk about the origins of things and to also do an explainer. That's the purpose of the show. And so recently, I've I've read a number of things that the uh, committee has done and put out, particularly regarding this election. And you have said that Social Security is on the ballot. That's what's at stake in this election. Can you talk a bit uh, more about what that means? Well, yes, of course. And thanks for inviting me to be on the program. Um, uh, The National Committee to Preserve Social Security and Medicare has been around for 38 years. We were founded by a former congressman from California by the name of uh, James Roosevelt, who was the oldest son of President Roosevelt. And he created the organization in the early 80s because he was worried about the future of Social Security under the new uh, President Reagan administration. So we're very political, unlike some other senior uh, advocacy groups. Uh, We uh, endorse candidates. We have a political action committee. And we base those endorsements on voting records for incumbents and on uh, for a challenger who doesn't have a voting record on uh, a questionnaire they are required to complete and, and an interview. We don't get into presidential campaigns <clears throat> up until now. We, we never have in 38 years. But you, you pointed out that we feel there's a, a lot on the line for Social Security. So the first time in 38 years, uh, we have gotten involved in a presidential campaign. And it really, uh, what tipped, uh, tipped us over the line was uh, uh, President Trump's uh, executive action to defer the payroll tax, the social security payroll tax that all workers, virtually all workers have to pay And he issued an executive order uh, deferring that tax uh, from September 1st through the end of the year. And then he uh, pledged, if reelected, he would eliminate the payroll tax completely. That is the best way to bankrupt the Social Security program. I don't know if the president really understands how the program is funded, only by payroll taxes, no, no other source of revenue. Um, and uh, or cares or both. Uh, so we felt it was important enough uh, for us to get into the presidential race because this uh, executive action really could, if he if he's reelected, if he carries through, it really would mean the end of the Social Security program. That's why we um, have taken the steps that we've taken. 
Yeah, I, I think it's really important to note that the current president's executive order, um, in, as you mentioned, stopping the payroll tax, and that's how Social Security is funded. Can you talk a bit about the funding stream and what's at stake for the program itself? Because I thought there were a number of other funding streams for Social Security. I wasn't aware that it was just the payroll tax. No, well, it's it's probably 95% the payroll tax, and the remainder is related to the payroll tax. Uh, uh, there's if more money, there's, there's about almost $3 trillion in the Social Security Trust Fund. That's, that's like a savings account. And that was built up over the last 40 years to uh, accommodate baby boomers that would enter the program in the last few years and in the, in the coming uh, few years. So a reserve was built up. And, and uh, when I say it, it's funded mostly by the payroll tax, there, the reserve is placed in uh, government bonds. So they earn interest. That interest is applied to the, to the program. So that is in addition to the payroll tax, but it wouldn't exist without the payroll tax because it's interest on the money that comes in that is not spent in, in, in any year and is applied to uh, uh, the uh, social security program. And, and also uh, there is, <clears throat> Uh, if you earn, if you are earning above a certain amount of money, um, there is, uh, uh, and you're collecting Social Security, there is uh, an additional tax uh, on your Social Security benefits, and that's a very small portion that goes into the into the Social Security Trust Fund. But primarily, uh, almost entirely, uh, it, it is uh, out of the payroll tax, and that is. Uh, when President Rose Roosevelt signed the Social Security Act, and I'm paraphrasing, he, he said that it was set up this way with a dedicated revenue stream so that no damn politician could ever mess with it. <laughs> yeah, since at least my adult um, life about the preservation of Social Security and other programs like Medicaid and Medicare, and particularly programs that support seniors in this country. And it's really hard to take something away from people once you have something um, implemented. And we see how much it helps support the everyday life of seniors in this, in this country. Talk a bit more about what's at stake for seniors um, in this election, in addition to Social Security. Well, uh, we have seen uh, uh, the, both Social Security and Medicare need to be uh, uh, looked at down the road. Uh, these, these are dynamic programs. They cha have changed over time. Social Security didn't include uh, some of the provisions at the beginning, uh, did not cover domestic workers, did not cover agricultural workers. Uh, did not cover uh, disabled uh, individuals, uh, did not have the kinds of uh, automatic inflation protections with the COLA, which by the way is not adequate, but it's not based on uh, the actual inflation that seniors experience, but it's better than nothing. Uh, for next year was announced yesterday, the cost of living adjustment, which is the increase in the check, the social security check for next year will be about 1.3% based on a flawed 
formula for determining inflation, which does not take into account the way inflation impacts a senior. But uh, as I said, these are programs <clears throat> that face uh, certain challenges. Uh, the actuaries of Social Security issue a report every spring, <clears throat> and they've told us just a few months ago, the program will not be able to pay full benefits under current law if there are no changes after 2035. There'll be a cut of about 20%. That is devastating since yeah. so many people who are on Social Security, that is all or most of their income. They don't have a pension. They have very little savings. So this is would be pretty drastic. Uh, we really can't let that happen. And that figure actually came out before we had the pandemic, before we had such high unemployment. If you're unemployed, you're not earning a wage, you're not paying payroll tax. That by itself, we, don't, we don't, haven't done an analysis, but that's gonna move that 2035 figure closer to the present. And of course, if the president eliminates the payroll tax, uh, it's our uh, understanding that the program will have no money in two and a half years. Two and a you, half you years. Know, wow. Related to that, that 2035 number, I've been hearing all, I think since college, that Social Security wasn't going to exist by the time it was, you know, time for me to reach that aid after, you know, paying into it. And like you mentioned, that report coming out, it becomes more and more realistic or, uh, ever present. That's something that we have are continuing to pay into so that we can support people that, by the way, majority of them also contributed to the social security program when they were working as well. You know, and I think that thought process, people think that we're providing just the charity and not that people have paid into this system as well. And therefore they are benefiting from that as well. Well, that's such a good point. It's, uh, it, you know, some people might call it a charity. It's often called an entitlement. Mm. It's not an entitlement. An, an entitlement is a benefit you give, you get because you're, you're living and breathing. Social security is something you get because you earned it. You paid in your every paycheck. You, you have paid into the program. You've earned these benefits. Uh, but you, you mentioned that there's uh talk, especially among younger people, that it won't be there for them in the future. First of all, that's wrong. There are a lot of myths about Social Security. There's no money there. It's bankrupt. It's gone. It's been stolen. The fact is, the way it works is, is as I explained to you, uh, there's a, a surplus by design built up to help uh, cover the influx of beneficiaries, the baby boomers that have started entering and will continue to uh, be part of the program. So um, uh, eliminating the payroll tax is going to move that 2035 date up even further, as is the un high unemployment because of the, we have a pandemic. But it's, it is not accurate to say it won't be there, because even if nothing is done, uh, benefits though, assuming the president doesn't follow through on eliminating the payroll tax, there will be money coming in. So it won't be enough, it won't be right, it won't be fair, but there will be money coming in. It, will never it won't disappear unless the payroll tax is eliminated. So if people are worried about that, they need to be worried about what the president has promised to do 
um, if reelected. So, uh, you know, the, it's really too bad that there are these misunderstandings about the program. I have heard, I do a lot, I've done hundreds and hundreds of town hall meetings around the country with members of Congress and, and uh, younger people that come often say, well, I'm more likely to see a UFO than never get a social security check. And that's not right. Uh, that won't happen as long as the program continues to function. Now, should it be changed? I think, and we support bringing more revenue into the program. You know, there, there's, there's another misunderstanding. There's a cap on wages subject to the payroll tax. It's $137,700 a year. Changes a little bit every year, but this year it's $137,700. So anybody that makes more than that doesn't pay any more payroll tax. Why? Mm -hmm. uh, why stop there? Uh, you know, we think there should be no cap. And Medicare had this had a cap as well. Then it was raised from about 80,000 to 125,000 and then eliminated altogether. So people working have their withholding the 1.45% on the employee and the same on the employer for Medicare. Uh, there is no cap, it goes through whatever your wages are. Social Security stops at 137,700. We would like to see the cap removed altogether. It would be fairer, I think, to have people continue paying. A lot of people don't even know there is a cap because they've never made that much money. So they assume, well, you pay social security on all your wages. But there, there's legislation that has a lot of support. Uh, it's been sponsored. The chief sponsor is a congressman from Connecticut named John Larson. It would keep the cap at what it is but then start collecting payroll tax again at $400,000 in wages. And that would bring in enough money to make the program sound, solvent, not just till 2035, but for the rest of this century, improve the minimum benefit. So it'd be 125% above poverty, still not a lot of money, but better, and have a more accurate way to figure out what inflation is doing for a senior so that the cost of living adjustment really is, uh, is correct and it would be more generous. So there, we, we don't, you know, we're a national committee to preserve social security at Medicare. We don't have our heads in the sand. We don't say don't ever do anything because then well, there will be a problem. We, we look at a way to bring enough revenue into the program in a fair way so that it's able to pay beneficiaries for the rest of this century. Yeah. You know, I think that's an important point. We were talking about generally the wealthy paying their fair share. I didn't know that there was a cap either. Right. So, so to think about the wealthy and all of the tax breaks that they get, including not contributing significantly or equitably to the payroll tax, which funds Social Security like that. You're teaching me something <laughs> to, to today and not knowing that there's like all these wealthy people, they're not paying payroll taxes either. But wait, let me clarify. They're paying up to one hundred and thirty thousand or they're not paying anything at all. No, they're, everybody pays up to one thirty seven. Gotcha. And after that, after that uh, no more payroll tax. Uh, and that's not fair. I'll give you an example I've used. There's a basketball player, a very famous basketball player. And I'm not going to name him because I did once and I got a lot of blowback. But he makes so much money. He stops paying his payroll tax halfway through the first quarter 
of the first game of the basketball season. All right. Wow. Rest of that quarter, the game, the season, the playoffs, the championship, no more payroll tax. And I have a feeling that this basketball player, and I won't name him, uh, he'd be okay with at least paying payroll tax for the whole quarter, the whole first quarter of the, of the first game of the season. And it just shows you uh, how unfair this is that someone with those kinds of resources can't contribute a little bit more for the benefit of, of the general public. Yeah, you know, this gave me a great idea. I wanna do a whole show when we're um, talking about the wealthy paying their fair share and really outlining that, right? Because name, saying it generally, but then going specific and saying that they don't pay, pay you know, payroll tax after this amount, that they don't pay income tax, that they don't pay this. And I think there's a, a difference. People say, I do pay taxes, I pay property taxes. That's not the same thing. <laughs> property taxes are not going into social security or to yeah. other programs. And so then it's, the programs are based on middle class and poor working folks rather than everybody. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's one other point I'm hoping your audience would, um, I think they'd appreciate knowing it. And I don't know, uh, it's not common knowledge, but social security isn't just for older people. You know, the, the uh, payroll tax, the official name, is, you know, the term FICA. Mm-hmm. Federal Insurance Contribution Act. It funds old age survivor and disability programs. A third of social security benefits go to non-retired workers, uh, survivors, uh, spouses, children, about 3 million children get by in life in the event they had a parent that died young, working parent that died young or became disabled. Uh, so it's, it's a program for families. And a good example I have used is, if for an example, if you are a 27-year-old worker with a spouse and two children, you have right now, never mind what happens when you turn 67, reach retirement age, you have right now about half a million dollars in value of life and disability insurance if something bad happens in that family. A lot of people don't know that. And, you know, I've, I've heard cases where someone will become disabled, a young, young worker, or die young, and the family will, you know, be distraught. And, and someone might say, well, you ought to check for Social Security. They can help you. It's a benefit. It's, it's, really even not, it's really not even a tax. I think it's too bad that we call it a payroll tax. You're buying insurance, Federal Insurance Contribution Act. You are paying a premium, an insurance premium, to benefit you, to protect you while you're working in the event of early death or disability, to protect your family as survivors, and to be there when you do retire, uh, become older and do retire. So it's really family insurance that people uh, purchase uh, through the payroll tax. All that disappears if, if uh, Social Security uh, succumbs to what the president has been talking about and getting rid of the funding mechanism, the payroll tax. Mm. 
I, I like that. Instead of talking about it as a tax, to talk about it as a, a family insurance. I, I, I do like that phrasing. Lastly, before um, I let you go, you talk about Medicare as well. And there is all sorts of misunderstanding about how Medicare is funded, who, what the responsibility is to write the program. Some obviously extreme want to get rid of it altogether, particularly because of the cost structure. Talk a bit more about Medicare and what's at stake. Well, Medicare is funded in two ways. There's Medicare Part A, which is the doctor's part, uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, provider's part, uh, uh, hospitals, I'm sorry, it, it's the hospital part, uh, and that's funded by the payroll tax. An employee for that part pays just with Social Security, has 1.45% of wages withheld, and employer matches that. That funds Part A. The, uh, uh, part B uh, is funded uh, out of general revenues and premiums. You, you have to pay, it's about 25% of the cost of Part B. Uh, the the um, provider part um, outside of the hospital part um, is funded through uh, general revenues, not a trust fund, uh, and premiums that are adjusted each year. Premiums are supposed to cover 25% of the cost. The rest come, comes from the federal treasury. Uh, and then there's part D, the prescription drug part that was added in 2003 uh, that uh, you have to pay uh, if you choose to, you don't have to have it. You can pay a premium. A lot of people do because it, they, they need the coverage. Is it perfect? No. Uh, Medicare, uh, does not cover a lot of things that people that are waiting to be 65, starts at 65, think it will cover. Does not cover hearing, does not cover vision, does not cover dental, all pretty important. And I know this, I know people who waited, you know, they need hearing aids, they need dental care, they need glasses, and they're waiting until they turn 65 because they think Medicare will cover that. It does not cover that. So, we support expanding Medicare to uh, include this coverage. Now, the next question is always, and I'm sure you're calculating this, I can see it in your eyes. How do you pay for that, right? Yes. The way you pay for it, I think one way is, I mentioned the Part D prescription drug part of Medicare. Uh, when that was passed into law, the Congress specifically prohibited the federal government from negotiating with the pharmaceutical companies to get the best price for prescriptions for Medicare beneficiaries. Does that make any sense? You're representing tens of millions of people and the government says you can't negotiate. Uh, you have a large employer that can negotiate that with uh, pharmaceutical companies. So this was something that, you know, you can, you can, Imagine who made sure that was put in the bill and it wasn't the committee to preserve social security, Medicare it was the pharmaceutical companies that needs to change. <clears throat> and I know uh, there's legislation in the Congress uh, that would get rid of that prohibition. It would save enough money by the government uh, and for individual beneficiaries to be able to expand the program and include vision, dental, and hearing. That, that's how I think it should be paid for, by saving money by uh, 
mandating that the government negotiate uh, for the best price. The last thing I wanted to mention, there's a lot of talk about Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. The Congress tried to repeal it, I think, 60 times or 70 times. Now <laughs> it failed and it's in the courts. The Supreme Court is going to hear a case November 11th about whether Obamacare should be scuttled completely. People don't realize all the benefits that the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, added to the Medicare program. Through Obamacare, if you're on Medicare, you have a lot of preventative treatments, diabetes screening, mammograms, colonoscopy, no out-of-pocket cost for the first time as part of the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. You have limits on out-of-pocket uh, it reduced the amount of uh, cost out of pocket for prescription drugs, still too high, but all those protections uh, disappear if the Affordable Care Act is ruled unconstitutional. Uh, and there were 12 years were added to the solvency, the financial health of the program uh, through the Affordable Care Act. That all disappears. So there's a lot at stake in the debate right now in the Supreme Court, uh, which we'll hear this case November 11th. All of those benefits, besides the pre-existing condition protections and 20 million people getting insurance that didn't have it, and Medicare beneficiaries will hurt, be hurt if the Affordable Care Act uh, is overturned in the Supreme Court. I want to thank you so very much for educating me on <laughs> these programs and certainly to our audience and welcome you back anytime to talk more um, about what's uh, at stake and what we need to be doing to ensure um, that we have a strong social security program and that ev it's equitable, that everybody is paying their fair share into these programs to make sure uh, that we maintain them. Thanks so uh, much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the program. How can it be that you love the most unlovable part of me, of me? How could you see your life was the only gift I'd ever need to be free? Welcome back to Sunday Civics, the home for the civically engaged. Your civics teacher is back with you. Thank you so very much for joining me on my birthday episode. I'm looking forward to all of your shout outs and thank you. I will take a bow virtually for everyone who reaches out to say happy birthday. We'll be back next week with more of Sunday Civics and I am really excited about that show. It will be the Sunday before election day. We have some great surprises for you on that day. So make sure you tune in as uh, we get through <laughs> this election season together. Thank you so very much for listening to Sunday Civics. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM Urban View, where talk becomes action. It's cool.